Philip Limbury, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. You are the CEO, the global CEO of Compassion and World Farming. Could you just very briefly explain to us, punch it out for us, what Compassion does, why it exists? Compassion in World Farming is an international animal welfare organisation that exists to end factory farming, uh, to end uh, keeping animals in cages in confinement in a way which is not only the biggest cause of animal cruelty on the planet, but is also a major driver of wildlife declines around the world, as well as being integral to the climate emergency that we're all facing. So for animals, people and the planet, compassion in world farming is all about that re-evaluating our relationship with animals ending factory farming moving away from cages and crates giving animals a decent life and therefore people too give us a sense of scale how many lives are you able to transform through what you do well, over the last 12 years, we've been running a corporate engagement program. We now uh, work with and engage with more than a thousand companies, big and small, around the world. And that engagement has yielded corporate commitments, companies saying that they're going to go cage free, for example, on all their eggs or, or move all of their chicken production to higher welfare. And when we add all of that up, all of the commitments over the last 12 years, result in two and a half billion animals a year set to benefit from better lives as a result of the higher welfare standards. Why do you care about animal welfare? Because I think it's important to respect all life, all sentient creatures. Animals are sentient beings. They they feel pain. They, they suffer. If we give them the opportunity, they can feel a sense of joy, uh, experience the joy of living. Uh, and to me, that's really important, not just for my dog, who's uh, Duke, who's lying here next to me as we speak, but for every kindred creature, be that a, a pig, uh, a chicken or a cow or a farmed fish. It's so important. Why do you think it is that so many of us are able to love our pets and yet still eat meat? How are we able to switch off our empathy, do you think? Because there's a separation, uh, because meat production, generally speaking, on factory farms and in slaughterhouses goes on behind closed doors. And that's reinforced in the supermarket because when you pick up a piece of meat, it doesn't say on it produced from an animal that suffered. It doesn't say intensively produced, produced on a factory farm. What it will tell you is farm fresh, uh, country fresh or some other old McDonald's farm kind of uh, kind of cliche uh, that helps you to forget or actually not even confront the way that the animal on your plate may have uh, lived, died and suffered in between. Have you always been a vegan yourself? No, um, I was a committed meat eater until my late teens. Uh, and then I felt that actually, as a budding conservationist, I wanted originally to be a nature reserve warden for the RSPB, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds. And I felt that actually we were all eating too much meat and that that was bad for the environment. It was only once I had uh, stopped eating meat myself that I uh, really made the connection with what was going on in factory farms, which just goes to underscore how hard it is for us as ordinary consumers to know the realities of factory farming. And that is why my mission in life 
has been uh, for the last 30, uh, 35 years to try to bring reality more to the forefront of our minds as consumers. How would you describe the tone of your messages? Because when I've interviewed you in the past on the LBC show that I presented, you haven't come across as aggressive. You haven't come across as patronising. You, you haven't tried to make us all feel terribly guilty. How would you describe your tone? Well, we see ourselves organisationally as passionate pragmatists. We try to take people from where they are, not where we we want them to be or think they should be, uh, but talking to people in a way which uh, is going to inform, uh, to be receptive uh, and uh, to, to help people to not only understand what's going on, but also help people to be involved. This isn't about purity. This is about making progress and getting society to recognise that treating animals better is good for the animals involved, but also good for our very futures. Can you easily imagine a day when we don't eat meat, meat in the sense in which we eat it at the moment, in other words, as the product of a slaughtered animal or bird? Well, as I argue in my book, uh, six, latest book, 60 Harvests Left, How to Reach a Nature-Friendly Future. I argue in that book that by 2100, by the year 2100, meat-eating as we know it will be a thing of the past. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there's such a planetary pressure now through uh, the amount of meat we're eating. For example, animal agriculture is responsible for more greenhouse gases than the, all the direct emissions from the world's planes, trains and cars put together. And we're eating more meat per capita. Uh, and there's more of us uh, eating meat than ever before. And that can't go on. Uh, so what I see is that there are various innovations that are coming on stream, like cultivated meat from stem cells produced in a bioreactor. So meat without the slaughter, as well as the improving plant based meats that are increasingly becoming more and more meat like and will do into the foreseeable future. Other technologies like precision fermentation that can produce precise meat proteins. Uh, if you like, or any other uh, a substance. So we are getting to the point where meat from animals that have lived in abject cruelty, transported to their death in a brutal slaughterhouse, that reality will be something which we can look at as a society and decide, well, has that meat met its point of redundancy? We did that with cart horses. We don't ride around on, in cart horses anymore. Technology got us to the point where we didn't need to. I believe that by the middle of this century, we will, as a society, be able to look at meat as we know it and take a similar decision. I don't know whether you could hear one of my working cocker spaniels growling in the background. I want to just pick you up on this idea that the, what was this, the stat or the suggestion exactly that the livestock industry produces more emissions than direct emissions from the transport sector around the world. And when I put that on Twitter recently, I got a lot of comeback, a lot of blowback from people who attempted to discredit that claim. How do you deal with arguments over the science in what you do as a, as a charity and in what you do as as an, an individual and how do you deal and this is part of the same question but how do you deal with people who don't like what you're doing or feel threatened by what you're doing i think the reality is in all aspects of our work we have to make sure that everything that we do is properly evidence-based 
So in the books and reports that we write, uh, we have extensive references. So references to the science, to uh, other sources, uh, making it very clear uh, where, where, where our information comes from. And we also recognise organisationally and individually that debate is part of life. And actually, debate is a good thing. We want to have a discussion. And that debate, you, you only have it if there are differences of view. There are people, for example, who still deny that climate change, man-made climate change is a thing. They still dispute that animals are sentient creatures that feel pain and suffer. They still dispute whether we put a, a person on the moon 50 years ago. That's the reality, that people question things. But that doesn't mean that our evidence-based view isn't right or valid. What does it mean to have 60 harvests left if that turns out to be the case? What it means is that if we carry on with industrial agriculture as, as we are at the moment, industrial agriculture is where uh, farmed animals are taken out of fields and put into confinement, cages and crates, and where, where crops are grown in monocultures using pesticides, chemical pesticides and artificial fertilisers, all of which is acknowledged by credible sources as being the key driver in the decline of soils worldwide. What the UN has warned is that if we carry on with that industrial mode of agriculture for animals and crops, then we have just 60 years left in the world's soils before the soil is either useless or gone. Uh, and no soil means no food. It means game over for us. So that is why we have to address the issue of industrial animal agriculture with some great urgency. How much progress do you think is being made in Britain, but also around the world on the issues that you feel so strongly about? I think the issues of, of the industrialization of agriculture, consumption of, of uh, too much uh, meat and other animal products, they are uh, rising up the agenda not fast enough and not clearly enough, but they are. The European Union, for example, is discussing its farm to fork strategy, which if implemented would see an end to cages across Europe, uh, would see pesticide and artificial fertilizer use uh, greatly reduced by, by half by 2030. So rollout of organic agriculture like we've never seen before. In the UK, uh, the British government has been talking about environmental land management subsidies, uh, ELMS, as, as a way of redirecting subsidies away from damaging practice towards uh, helpful practice. In the US, we've seen this reawakening of the need to move to regenerative nature-friendly farming. It's still very much at a, a proposal stage or embryonic stage, but nevertheless, people are waking up to the realisation that change is inevitable. It has to happen. It's just a matter of how quickly we can bring it on. Tell us why you decided to write 60 Harvests Left and, and some of the things that you learned in the writing of it. I wanted to write a book that offered a sense of urgency the fact that we do need to change the way that we produce food and do it very, very quickly for all our sakes, for animals, people and the planet, but also a sense of hope. And that's why I wrote the book around uh, the theme of the four seasons. Uh, the summer is where we as a society are at the moment. It seems like an endless party that we can consume as if the planet has no boundaries. But we're now seeing autumnal chill coming on, that the leaves are turning brown. Climate change is a good example of that impending autumn. 
COVID-19 was a good example of what a perpetual winter could look like for us as a society, a society that previously saw itself as untouchable, as invincible, now uh, knows it's, it's fragile. But the book I wanted to write, most of the book uh, is about spring is about the beautiful, life-affirming solutions, opportunities that are there in regenerating the countryside, in rethinking protein and rewilding, not least the soil, and bringing back nature, bringing back soil health, bringing back farmed animals to the land and bringing back to everyone's table better food and creating a decent future for our children. Explain what the soil should look like, because you were watching a tractor churn up the earth and you suddenly realised there weren't any birds flying behind this tractor. Why and what should be the case? Well, exactly. We all have that vision of uh, of the plough being pulled and, and noisy gulls behind it, picking up an easy meal of worms in newly upturned soil. And so when I was walking with my rescue dog, Duke, we could see, we could see the plough uh, and I could see one. This was an, an iconic moment in the countryside that happens every year. But two, there was something wrong. There were no birds. And the reason that there were no birds we discovered when we, we went up to the plough was that there were no worms. This was a wormless field. In fact, there was no life in that soil. The soil had lost its nutrients, had lost its uh, health, uh, had emitted the carbon that it holds into the atmosphere and had turned to sand. We could have been walking on the moon. Put it the other way, what should it have looked like? Well, Matt, one of the things that I advocate is that one the biggest opportunity for rewilding is rewilding our soil, our agricultural soil. And how do we do that? We do that by bringing back the elephant. We've heard about bringing back beavers and, and, and uh, uh, white storks and other animals. I believe we should bring back the elephant. In saying that, I mean, slightly tongue in cheek, I don't actually mean huge five tonne animals with long trunks and floppy ears. What I mean is we should bring back the elephant's weight of biodiversity that should be under every uh, healthy patch of soil the size of a football pitch. And so healthy soil should look much more dark brown or black rather than it should look like chocolate cake rather than sand. It should hold 13,000 species of life. Uh, it should have uh, up to four million worms. Uh, it should hold carbon from the atmosphere. It should hold water against gravity for thirsty crops. And it should be there in a way which doesn't need chemical pesticides or artificial fertilizers to produce the very best nutritious food we mentioned birds very briefly we both have a love of bird watching and we'll come back to that later but you also mentioned COVID-19 could you explain to us some of the risks attached between over farming between factory farming perhaps and disease spreading within the human community well, what is factory farming? It's keeping too many animals in too small a space, which means that those animals are not only uh, suffering, which lowers their immunity. Uh, they're also uh, very often living in, in dirty conditions, disease ridden conditions. Essentially, factory farms are a perfect breeding ground for disease. 
Not just that, for new and more dangerous types of disease, viruses can get into these sheds where there can be thousands, tens of thousands of, of chickens, for example, and it can spread like wildfire. And under those conditions, it's perfect for the virus to, uh, to mutate uh, and to become more pathogenic. Uh, more deadly. And we've seen this with, with swine flu, which came from factory farms in the Americas. And uh, so COVID-19, which of course uh, we, we know the impact, COVID-19 is thought to have come uh, from the animal kingdom, not from a factory farm, but uh, uh, from the keeping of, uh, from bats and then the keeping of, of other animals in uh, wet markets, in, in cruel conditions, and that being transferred to people. So there is this breeding ground of disease creating more deadly strains that can then be transferable to people it's it, it's happened and the uh, and as factory farming has increased the likelihood of it happening again uh, increases too but there's another way another aspect keeping too many animals in too small a space means that they are open to sickness and disease which means we have to feed them antibiotics to keep them healthy to keep them alive actually to keep them alive rather than healthy and we currently feed in the region of three quarters of the world's antibiotics to farmed animals. And this is a major reason why the World Health Organization is uh, saying that if we carry on as we are, then our antibiotics will become useless because of uh, antibiotic resistance. Uh, and if that happens, well, then 10 million people by 2050 could be dying every year as a result uh, of currently treatable diseases that will uh, in the future kill because of the death of antibiotics. What's your relationship like with farmers and how do you seek to get them on your side? Our relationship, I live on a farm. Uh, we were founded by a farmer, Peter Roberts, a dairy farmer in the 60s. Uh, we have very good relationships with uh, with good farmers, with farmers that are pasture fed or free range or organic, that are keeping animals in great conditions, that are, are doing it in a way which brings biodiversity back and soil health and creates better food. But ultimately, we as an organization, we don't rely on persuading farmers. We rely as an organization, what our tactic is, is to talk to governments, uh, to talk to companies and to get new policies that will see an end to cages and crates that will see companies saying they're not going to stock battery eggs anymore. Uh, and in this way, rather than creating change one farmer at a time, we create change by thousands of farmers at a time. Every time we get a, a major supermarket to say they're not going to stock cage-free eggs, they're only going to stop barn or free-range eggs, then the thousands of farmers in their supply chain have to change. And they change to a market that is ready created. Imagine a world where we only had free-range and organically reared animals. Would that be acceptable to you or would you like to eliminate slaughter entirely? And if we eliminated its slaughter entirely, what would that mean for some of the species of animals that at the moment we slaughter? I see a mix going forward of animals kept in regenerative nature-friendly farms and uh, that there'll be far fewer of them. Uh, but they'll be kept uh, in mixed rotational farms where they can live their best life. And that cheap meat 
as we know it at the moment, which is actually factory farmed meat, will be replaced by cultivated meat from, from stem cells grown in bioreactors or plant-based meats or the precision fermentation that I mentioned earlier. So I do think that uh, it's not one size fits all. I think there will be a portfolio of solutions. And one of the things which I advocate is that as, a, as an animal welfare movement, as a, a, a food movement that wants to see an end to industrial agriculture, we should move beyond Beyond tribalism, we shouldn't. We sh should avoid attacking other people's solutions. So, what tends to happen is that regenerative farmers hate vegans, and vegans hate the regenerative farmers, and then they both hate the cultivated meat producers, the cell-based meat producers. And what I say is, who wins in this division? The factory farmers. So let's come together and see ourselves as solution pieces to a beautiful puzzle for the future. What do you say, Philip, to those who would argue that we cannot afford in the short term to combat climate change seriously? We cannot afford in the short term to move towards sustainable farming methods. What's what's your message to them? Well, the message is the time to act is now, that we won't get a second chance at, at addressing the climate emergency or the collapse of nature or the death of our soils. If we don't act now, then it will cost us far, far more in the future. And that will not just be a monetary cost. It will be a cost to the very livableness of the future for our children. It's as simple as that. I want to get a sense of what it's like running a charity. Do you enjoy it? Does it come with enormous frustration or, or do you largely feel good because you, you sense you're making a difference? Well, it's never easy, Matt running an organization, an international charity or, or any charity, and, and nor should it be. It should be challenging. I think the, the key ingredient of any leader that is looking to push boundaries is that you've always got to be looking to push out of your comfort zone. So that is, is uh, comes with its challenges, comes with its frustrations, but comes with a richness, a richness of positivity that we are driving progress. I'm always proud of the progress that Compassion in World Farming and other organizations are delivering for animals. I'm never satisfied. And that is the tension. Never satisfied because we always have to do more. We always have to do it faster, deeper, uh, and so on. But yeah, it's difficult. Of course, there are sleepless nights, but it is immensely rewarding. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you had worked for the RSPB. Describe to us your love of birds and the pleasure you get from both bird watching and photographing birds. Oh, birds to me have been a lifetime's fascination uh, since my grandfather was uh, was letting me feed the sparrows in his garden with bits of bread uh, and it the, the birds are my solace they are a, a great focus I'm, I'm i love to be living in the countryside um, but i started out wanting to be a nature reserve warden i wanted to be a hands-on conservationist digging ditches making hides and looking after uh, nesting birds and that's why when i was a teenager i worked for six months for the for the rspb at titchwell marsh rspb in north norfolk and i i loved it um, I, I loved it with a passion, but somehow I came more and more involved in the animal welfare movement. Life took a turn. Uh, and now I'm very remote from that hands-on conservation that I started out. However, 
I, I feel that I've brought both of my passions together, birds and um, animal welfare, com compassion in wild farming, through driving change for animals, both farmed and wild. Because by getting animals out of factory farms, back on the land, in nature-friendly, regenerative farms, we bring wildlife back too. And so this, to me, is the sweet spot. Offer us an insight into what life is like for Philip Limbury outside of work and maybe even outside of bird watching, outside of nature. What do you like in the kitchen? <laughs> well, I think my my wife Helen should be answering that particular question. Um, you know, look, I'm I, I'm not the world's best uh, cook, uh, I, 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 but I, I do like to to make meals. I do like to um, surprise Helen with with new things, um, and I love wine, particularly New Zealand wines uh, or South African. And so we, yeah, so we we have um, a Saturday night wine evenings where I serve up a lovely meal, and uh, uh, we have our, our favourite tipple. I want to finish by asking you to give us your your final message of this podcast. So to, to people such as me who could do better. I'm not sitting here and throwing stones from a glass from a, a glass building because I recognise that I could do better in my own life. I want to do better. How do you get more and more of us on board with what you're trying to achieve? Well, the key thing is to realise that this isn't about purity. This is about encouraging people to get involved. And we can all get involved. We can get involved by uh, by signing up to organisations like Compassion in World Farming, CIWF.org. Uh, sign up to our newsletters and we will help you to take easy actions to deliver pressure on governments, on companies, on the UN uh, that can really make a difference. But... I would also say that we can all uh, make a difference through our food choices. We all have the power of our plate, uh, which we can take three times a day by choosing to eat more plants, less uh, but better meat and dairy. And by better, I mean by choosing uh, meat and dairy that comes from pasture fed, free range or organic sources. In this way, we really can reduce animal suffering and create a better future for animals, people and the planet. Philip Limbury, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. You are very welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for all of your support and involvement.